You're listening to the Keeping Abreast with Karen podcast, brought to you by the Karen T. Stahl Research and Breast Institute. Now, here's your host, Karen T. Stahl. Hello, and thanks for joining us today on this Mammary Monday. Chuck, I'm so glad that you're here with me today. I missed you this weekend. I know. It's it's uh, it's good to be back. It's good to see you. Uh, you are uh, up on the North Shore taking care of, the, of your property up there and getting outside and outdoors. I'm sure you're feeling refreshed. I am. In fact, um, Dad and I celebrated our birthdays over the last few days, and uh, we did exactly what we wanted to do, and that was outside, sweating, painting, moving things around. We like to do stuff like that to keep it real. And I heard uh, somebody talking to you about your birthday and that old adage, you know, never ask a lady her age, but you were pretty darn proud of yours this year, and I think it's because... To put it lightly, you, you're not supposed to be here right no, now. No, not really. No, I turned 60 Thursday. Very happy to turn any age. Happy to be alive and just walking amongst all these great people that we've surrounded ourselves with. Well, as crazy of a time it is in 2020, there's still a lot of good going on. Good doesn't stop just because the world goes a little crazy. Indeed. And we're hoping to make more of it. And as we're sitting here in the office and we're up to our eyeballs and silent auction items that have been donated by by so many generous people already, and we're still accepting them for our Click to Save event on September 24th coming up. We are, and uh, any donation is greatly appreciated. Never think something's too small or too big. We're happy to pick it up if you need it picked up. Um, and I would say up until a week before silent auction we're able to accept silent auction donations yeah there is a processing period because we we have our event online and last year we partnered with thompson auctions and we every all the bidding is done by phone now you can pick up or any mobile device phone tablet computer you log into the website and you can start viewing and bidding on these items well to get into the computer it takes a process and so we ask that people give us about a week's heads up we'll a week before the event, we'll stop accepting silent auction items. But if you have something and you want us to take a look at it or pick it up for you, if you email chuck at ktsrbi.org or karen at ktsrbi.org, we'll facilitate the pickup. We'll get you a tax letter, and you and your accountant can handle that. Indeed, and it's very, very appreciated. Your donations go to a fabulously worthy cause. So let's tell people, how does this work? I give you something. How does it go to help end breast cancer, right? Well, we have our event every year called Sip to Save, and it is a huge part of our fundraising efforts for things like our grants and our endowments with Ochsner and LSU and other hospitals. Well, to get those funds to the people who need them, and those funds do things like they, they fill in the gap that insurance doesn't cover, or when a company is getting creative with their billing and something that should be covered, well, they don't call it this. And there's the, there's the dance. It is. The little nuances and the little subtle changes can sometimes leave people in a bind. Yeah, and I try not to think of it as an adversarial relationship because we've seen with CAGLA that the insurance companies will work with us at times. They will. But it's a dance. It really is. And we have to remember that... Um, the medical community is dealing with the human aspect of things that insurance companies are about dollars and cents it's without a business. with it's a business that doesn't have feelings so these two very contrary <laughs> concepts are constantly negotiating and it, and it can sometimes be problematic but we're here to um, help those folks close those gaps without any hesitation 
So that's what some of your funds do or some of your donations when you give items. Other things that uh, we have going on is we have uh, grants that we give out to people who are in need, and we've distributed a few grants recently. We have. The impact that it makes on someone directly. I mean, this is what you think of when you talk about direct giving, to be able to look at somebody's face and know that you didn't fix the problem, but you helped. And because we don't have any administrative costs and we don't have – we really have probably only 10% um, cost to run our foundation. So every 90% of what we take in goes to the mission. Our treasurer is a very, very tight and creative accountant. <laughs> You're being kind. He's definitely what you would call a fiscal conservative. <laughs> that would and be your dad. Yes, that would be my dad, <laughs> Big Chuck. But uh, he does a great job of helping us make sure we we are able to maximize Indeed. what goes to the patient to the people in need so and we're proud to say that uh, uh, i think by law you only have to use 10 percent of what comes into your foundation for the cause we don't do it that way we do it the other way around we try to t- make it less than 10 percent to run and the rest goes directly to our mission how many times do you see a mom and pop nonprofit, right? I mean, that's right. great. That's that's what you're looking for. With the kids on board. Quite quite literally. <laughs> so actually we've got a few there's a few exciting things to talk about. There's a few fundraising opportunities we're going to have for our breasties out there who listen and, and share the message of what what we have going on. We're going to have the Click to Save event on the 24th. Keep sending us those items. Keep an eye out this week. We're going to have a link out there where you can buy VIP gift baskets to have your own sip to save at home. And, and I'll talk, talk more tell about them a little, yeah, talk about that. Now. Yeah, sure. Why not? So we've been partnering with Martin's Wine Cellar and other uh, other local vendors. We're going to put you together a gift basket that's going to be for sale. It's going to be delivered to you by a KTSRBI volunteer if you're in the New Orleans metropolitan area. If you're in any other place, if you're in Houston, if you're in California, if you're in Oklahoma, we're going to ship you one. Exactly. So we're going to ship one out to you uh, so you can have a click-to-save party at home. And what we really want to see is pictures from your party. Let us see you at your home with your family having having that celebration as if you were here at Metairie Country Club with us doing it like we do every year. Enjoying our live broadcast. You'll be here in West End. We talked to West End. They're going to be... Uh, they're going to have a producer come in and help them out with their video broadcast. It's going to be really, really cool. <laughs> so I'm excited about that. I know their front man, Kyle Thomas, is already making Familiar a killer guy. playlist. He's okay. <laughs> so, uh, Also, we have in the month of October, we're going to have the men of KTSRBI are participating in the Real Men Wear Pink campaign. And we're, we're talking to men from the oldest, meaning your dad, to the right. youngest little woogie. That's right. We, uh, the men of KTSRBI are going to be running around town spreading the message of wearing pink and showing that you can be a real man and very secure. In fact, only the securest of men Naturally. Can, can rock some pink. So keep an eye out for that. We'll be, we'll be hitting you guys up for the next few months because this is, this is breast cancer time. October's coming up. This is where the message of breast cancer comes to the forefront, and just because there's other things going on in the world. Breast cancer is not sleeping. Doesn't go away. We're so, trying to make it go away. We're trying to annoy it at least <laughs> until it just doesn't want to hang out with us right. anymore. <laughs> Whatever it takes. <laughs> now, to our guests today, we've got two great guests. What's the what's today's theme that we we were talking about earlier? Oh goodness, um, 
we can rebuild her. I love it. <laughs> We've got two great reconstruction specialists on tap for today. We've got Dr. Hugo St. Hilaire. Yes. And we also have Michelle Martinez, who is a tattoo artist, an areola 3D, 3D, right in art. She has to do with 3D and breast reconstruction. I know. Isn't it crazy? She's it's perfect for the show. 3D micropigmentation. 3D micropigmentation. Yes. So her interview is extremely interesting. Dr. St. Hilaire's is extremely interesting. So without any further ado, we're going to go to our first interview with Michelle Martinez. Excellent. Hello, and welcome to another segment of Keeping Abreast with Karen. We'd like to welcome today Michelle Martinez from Beso uh, Cosmetics. I know I want to make sure I give you a good plug there. It's uh, actually, actually Beso 3D areola micropigmentation and Michelle that's such a unique specialization and I'd love for you to share with our audience an explanation of exactly what that is definitely so the 3d areola micropigmentation is basically a tattoo that gives the illusion of a areola so we play with color lights and darks to give it a protruding effect so that you can look at it from any angle and it looks like it's 3D, like it's, like it's real. So without having to do any nipple reconstruction, you can get the 3D areola and get the same effect and it look nice and natural and just perfect how you used to be. Michelle, that is so incredible and I'm an artist at heart. It just blows my mind at how fabulous your work is. I have seen it firsthand amongst some of our breast friends and um, it, it's amazing how beautiful your work is. Thank you so much. How did you learn how to do that? So um, let's back up to my, um, the beginning. I was an artist, I draw and paint. I'm really good at um, oil pastels and my favorite was still art. So I can make and create an art piece that looks like real life. So when I got into the industry, makeup and uh, women's faces was my favorite. And um, fast forward to a couple years into the um, permanent makeup industry, and I came across the 3D areola tattooing. And I've seen a couple in-person clients would ask me about it, and I just wasn't satisfied with what I was seeing. And... Um, so I, I dug in further and did some research and I went to a really, really um, great school in Pennsylvania and I learned at a hospital. So not only did I learn the art and was able to implement my, my art um, talent already, I was able to learn the different types of surgeries that these women go through to kind of better understand their situation as far as um, if they got the beat flap and they move skin to from uh, body to the, the breast or if they just had a reconstruction surgery. Um, so I got really good information about the ins and the outs of the surgery to kind of feel more um, understanding with my clients as well. I, I'm just completely fascinated and in awe of your ability. Your um, talent in mixing color just blows me away. Um, how did you learn to do that? Skin tones are important. Everyone has a different skin tone. Yes, that's very important. Um, it has a lot to do with the person's undertone. And um, I think that me 
being an art had a big part in it because I'm able to understand how to neutralize colors with the client's undertones and what color selection to choose. But honestly, when I do my areolas, I like to customize the areola to either if they have a picture from pre-surgery of how they used to be or if they want a whole new look to it and I like to match it and talk to my client and just customize each service because I want it to feel um, important to them and to them to feel whole again. Oh, that's a great thing to have mentioned. How does it make you feel when your client is finished? Because by the time they get to you after a breast crisis, you're sort of the icing on the cake. You're sort of the, the finishing touches. So how satisfying is it for you to see the fruits of your labor and it, how the patient is pleased with their outcome? Honestly, this is the most rewarding part of my career is um, doing the, the areola because the reactions to the work is almost um, like it makes me cry. It makes them cry. It's such a special moment that they're finished with their journey and um, that they, they're able to see themselves, that they're able to feel comfortable taking off their clothes and being in front of their spouse or just feeling whole again all together that they're finally finished with this journey. Um, it's an incredible feeling and I just, I really love this procedure. Um, it always it's making me tear up a little yeah. bit. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's very important because even if you completed all of the surgeries and you don't do the areola, you still look in the mirror and know that you've had you went through what you went through, you know, and you went through the surgeries, you went through all those years of, um, of uncertainty, you know, and I feel like once they get this done, they really feel at ease and relaxed and like, wow, I'm finally finished, you know, um, that's, they, they, that's just so true. Of yeah. When, when you have breast cancer, uh, unfortunately, it's something that comes to your mind every day. You, you can just be sitting there and it will come to your mind. So if you're able to help someone feel whole again and be able to um, have a natural look to themselves, that's one less concern that's in, in, their, in the back of their mind for sure. Mm -hmm. So how did you um, find the market to do this? Did you seek out plastic surgeons? Did they seek you out or was it a combination? It's a combination. Um, I have a really good reputation with my business already in, the, in this area. So I feel like a lot of plastic surgeons know me. Um, also, I was already receiving uh, client recommendations and referrals from plastic surgeons for my other services. So when I introduced the service and I was able to um, show my talent and my work, um, they were able to reach out to me and I would meet with them, show them my portfolio, because of course, when I do any new service, I do a couple for free and just to get my, um, just to get the ball rolling and to get my portfolio started and to get comfortable with the procedure. So once I um, showcased it a little bit and was able to talk to a couple, other plastic surgeons started reaching out and, um, I honestly have a list of plastic surgeons that I want to reach out to, but I haven't even got there yet. <laughs> but wow, yeah, it's it's an incredible um, service, and every October I try to uh, be a part of some breast cancer 
events and either speak or do donations, do raffles, do anything I can to help and to get my name out there is very important for me as well. Well, we would love to have you participate in our Click to Save virtual event this year. And we could talk Definitely. more about that after for our sure. interview today. I was so blown away by your presentation at Dr. Thomas Sands' um, annual luncheon at his office that um, yes. I saved all of your stuff. And I said, I, you know, I'm going to I'm going to get back with Michelle. She's she knows what she's talking about for sure. Um, if you could give one bit of advice to someone going through a breast cancer journey, what would it be? Um, honestly, I would say get your finishing touches from a plastic surgeon because sometimes the doctors at the hospital, they are more focused on getting the cancer out than the aesthetic of it all. And, you know, as women, we want to look how we look before even better if, if we can, right? So Indeed. I would definitely recommend um, getting a, the final touches from a plastic surgeon and, of course, coming to see me at best of <laughs> getting uh, the 3D areola to finish it all off. Well, let's talk about that for one second. I want you to tell everyone how they can get in touch with you, where you're located, and yes. what are some of the other services you provide? So my business is called Beso Makeup. I offer permanent makeup services like microblading, ombre brows, powder brows, uh, lip blushing, eyeliner. Um, we do a service called BB Glow and a skin tightening procedure called Plasma Pen. Those are our most popular services. I'm located in Metairie, Louisiana, um, right behind Perino's Nursery, the plant, um, the plant business. I'm close by, it's 3026th Street, and uh, I'm in Suite B. And I also own Louisiana's only microblading school, and that's in our upstairs in Suite C. And, um, my phone number is 504-518-4461, and our Instagram is at Beso Makeup, B-E-S-O-M-A-K-E-U-P. Michelle, I'm coming to see you because I just, I just want to have something done, <laughs> a few things, yes. and I think you're wonderful, <laughs> and I need to come and Thank see you, you and make an appointment very soon. I thank you so for much sure. for joining us today. I know how busy you are. You're an incredible professional. You're an incredible angel to women who need to feel whole again after uh, a traumatic experience. And you do just that. Uh, we, we thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope to see you at our Click to Save event. Definitely. You'll definitely see me there. Thanks so much, Michelle. We'll see you very, very soon. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Have a nice day. That was our interview with Michelle Martinez of Besso. Absolutely fascinating line of work. I can't imagine being able to be the last part of, of rebuilding and you get a lot of glory because your, your patient is seeing the final results. They're right there. They're beautiful. And you feel whole again. That's got to be amazing on Michelle's end. What she does, what she provides, it, breast reconstructive surgeons, they really can't make you a new nipple and areola. And so they can give you a new breast and they can give you the aesthetic with your clothes on. But, you know, people want to feel confident in their natural state. They want to feel, like you said, whole again. Mm -hmm. Hearing her talk about 
the care from the patient and the mental aspect and what they receive from her art, from her service, that's the kind of professional you want to go to. That's the kind of person who really cares. And and Michelle is that caring person because she wants to get the skin tone correct. She wants to get the shape correct. She wants you to be happy with the end result, and she genuinely cares about everyone that she helps. Yeah, the sincerity when when you were talking to her, it, it really, really shines through. And I was enjoying you guys going back and forth because in another life, you were very, very into art. Yeah. So for you guys to get to talk on that level just about art, I, I think you may have found a new breastie here. I think I have. And I, maybe that was my attraction to what she had to offer people. When I met her um, at Dr. Sand's office at a seminar, she did such a great job of her presentation that I just felt like I've got to share this. Well, you need to go give Michelle Martinez a look. If you're looking to do um, any kind of breast tattooing or, or skin tattooing, her commitment to blending tones and colors and making things super ultra realism. I mean, it's amazing the things that she can Truly. do with 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 tattoo ink. It's it's very, very I don't it's have a better word than cool. It's fascinating. It really is cool. And it's very fascinating. So, well, that kind of segues into our next interview. So. Michelle takes the canvas. Well, Dr. St. Hilaire, he makes the canvas. He constructs the canvas. Mm -hmm. And he's very similar to Michelle in the care for his clients and patients. And he even kind of um, doesn't care for reconstructive surgery terms. Um, He likes the term restoration, which I like. That kind of means putting you back the way you were. Um, His talents are so far and wide started out in dentistry started out with tiny tiny oral issues and somehow just decided to combine these talents and knowledge that he had to bring him where he is today and he does a lot of work uh mission work too otherwise he goes on on trips and, and cares for for the needy in those aspects and he he's another uh individual that you his his genuine care for people shines through when he, when he speaks. And I like so much to find folks like that because when you're in a crisis situation with a breast cancer diagnosis, you're so vulnerable, you're so scared. It's not your everyday life. You want someone who's going to be compassionate and and not look at you as like, well, this is patient number 00715. You want a you want a personal, warm, comforting, confident relationship. And it's got to be a tough profession to maintain that in when so often in your day it's dealing with these dark and scary issues, cancer, and telling people rough news, and it's got to be very emotionally taxing on those medical professionals. And it's just important for everyone to remember that at the end of the day, it's the patient and their ability to put them in the best position to fight the disease they're up against. And it's a sensitive subject. I mean, just since you've come to help us with the foundation, Chuck, you have seen some of the roller coasters of emotion that go through the office, and it's not nearly like a physician's office, but there are there's so much emotion attached to what's going on in the office every day. Um, a lot of it's joyful news. Some of it isn't joyful. So um, sensitivity is a must. 
when I first came to work with the foundation, I didn't realize how much hands-on work we do with patients, not in medical care, but to be a sounding board, to be an ear, uh, to be a place where they're seeking information, not, not even really advice, but just right. information. Information and kind of helping to pick up the emotional pieces. And it's, it's funny. I mean, we've had people that have reached out to us in every avenue of life, people that we've known from every corner of the world, from, you know, the West Bank where we came up and all the way from coast to coast, the north, and people ask us, Oh, I have a loved one that's just for this. What do I do now? Mm -hmm. So you're really going to enjoy this interview with Dr. St. Hilaire. It's a lengthy interview. It's very detailed, but it's very, very interesting, and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to another segment of Keeping Abreast with Karen on this Mammary Monday. And joining us today is Dr. Hugo St. Hilaire, and he has a very special talent of making a person whole again after a breast cancer experience. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Hilaire. Well, thank you very much for, for having me. Dr. Hilaire, you had a very, excuse me, Dr. St. Hilaire, you had a very interesting path to becoming a breast reconstruction specialist. Would you mind sharing with our listeners how your career began in medicine and where it led you today? Absolutely. That, that's a great question because it, it always raised some eyebrows when sometimes <laughs> my physicians in the office because actually I started my, my career in the medical field as a, as a dentist. Uh, as a young you know, college student, um, I didn't have anybody in my family that were in the medical field and, or, or the dental field and, and I was intrigued by all the avenues and what initially attracted me was the dental world. And one of the um, elements that I found very fascinating was the, the need for, you know, doing some very precise work in a very small uh, area, you know, the back of the mouth, do fillings, do things like that. As I learned more about the dentistry, I started to, be develop, uh, to develop an interest in, in surgery. So I graduated from dental school at the McGill University in Montreal, where I'm from. And um, after that, I actually worked for a year as a general dentist at a Jewish general hospital in Montreal. And I decided to pursue additional training in oral and maxillofacial surgery uh, because, you know, not only I was interested in doing intricate work in small areas, but also I, I wanted to explore more the surgical aspect. And that training took me to Mount Sinai in New York. It's an institution that offered both a training in oral maxillofacial surgery as well as the ability to get a medical degree. So I actually proceeded with my training in oral maxillofacial surgery at Mount Sinai, graduated from medical school from there as well in 2001. And again, you know, it's funny how things happen. You get exposed to new things. And part of my training over there was some general surgery rotation and plastic surgery. And um, I became very fascinated by, by reconstructive microsurgery, uh, which was very strong in, in, in breast and head and neck reconstruction as well at Mount Sinai. And I was made aware of an avenue as an oral maxillofacial surgeon with additional, maxil with additional general surgery training that could take me to plastic surgery. So I did all my, pre -requir my requirements and uh, I was able to match at uh, LSU 
and I, I moved to New Orleans the summer before Katrina. That oh my, my goodness. My, my welcome to New Orleans. And, and to me, you know, LSU was, was exactly what I was looking for because of the, you know, the rich history in reconstructive microsurgery uh, that LSU has. So uh, moved to New Orleans, you know, July 1st, like all the good residents. And then next thing you know, it's August, end of August, early <laughs> September, and I got nowhere to train. Oh, man. So I actually, then, so what I did, I went back to New York, spent a little bit of time at Mount Sinai. Dr. Charles Dupin, who's, who's one of the big pioneer in microsurgical breast reconstruction, was our program director at the time and subsequent chief of the division, was able to help us get some training. And I used some of my um, friends in the world of plastic surgeon, oral maxillofacial surgeon, an individual by Eduardo Rodriguez, who is now the chairman of plastic surgery at NYU, who did some of the most recent um, comprehensive face transplant, who helped me get a temporary position at Johns Hopkins. So I spent about four months there, you know, so my, my training would not be interrupted. And during that time, you know, I developed a, a good friendship and relationship with all the staff over there. So January 1st came in. As I left Hopkins, they told me, listen, if you want to come back, you know, we have a fellowship in craniofacial surgery and microsurgery. We want you, it'd be great for you to come back and spend more time with us. So I came back to New Orleans. I completed my training in plastic surgery. And uh, uh, then I went back and spent a year at Hopkins and uh, University of Maryland for uh, focusing more studies in craniofacial and microsurgery. And, you, you have know, incredible mentors in your life. Oh, well, I was lucky to, to meet those individuals, you know, that just, you know, passed through my educational career. And I, absolutely, you're right. I'm lucky. This is a lot of luck. It's a lot about who you know to, you know, it's a lot of hard work to make them happy as well. And, and when I came back, you know, as you know, people from here love it here. And, 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 and during my training, I met my, my wife, who's from mm -hmm. New Orleans, so she, she wanted to be back in New Orleans. So I well, you know, as, as a native New Orleanian, you're never really allowed to leave. <laughs> I'm back to New Orleans, and because of my craniofacial training, you know, and there was a need at the time. So when I started my practice in plastic surgery in 2008, you know, a lot of my focus was in, in craniofacial surgery. And what I really enjoyed was, you know, making a difference in children's, you know, um, mm -hmm. and then that you can't, uh, you know, you can't put a price on. It's, it's really altering people's life. Yes. Uh, and, and as my, my practice developed, I still had a, a, a very strong interest in microsurgery and in, in, breast, reconstruct, in breast restoration as well. I start in an, and you know everything was rebuilding after the after Katrina in New Orleans. So I was I was lucky enough to be involved in the revi revival of the Baptist Breast Program after the hurricane with Dr. Riker, uh, yes, Dr. Corsetti and and Whit Wise, who was my partner at the time. It was me and him, staff at LSU, and we uh, we, we revived the program at Baptist Hospital. And then as things stabilized a little bit more, you know, we, uh, we, 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 we had the return of Dr. Allen and, and other big figures in the field. And I was 
lucky enough to have some time to spend with them and, and developed a little, even more interest in, in helping um, patients with breast cancer. Well, with that said, can you explain to our audience and maybe educate us a little bit on some of the different reconstructive applications and modalities and when those circumstances apply? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the restora- I, like, I like the word restoration more than reconstruction. I like that too. I think, I think I'll start using that. It's, it's more human than, you know, it makes, it's, it's more personal, you know? Yes. Um, so I am, I guess, lucky enough because I was exposed to different, different individuals throughout my training. So I have a pretty, pretty good um, expertise in both what we call prosthetic, which is implant-based reconstruction, restoration. You know, the ultimate goal is to use implants to restore the breast as well as autogenous, meaning using your own tissue to restore your breast. There's also a, 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 me, a, a medium, you know, a combination of both of these techniques called a hybrid breast restoration, which combines both implants and your own tissue. So, you know, there, there is a lot of options and not all options comes with the same end results in terms of maintenance down the road. And it's one of the big um, elements to be aware of. You know, patients that have a, uh, an implant type or reconstruction after illness, they do need to be aware that it will be in time. You know, the FDA needs uh, requires us to tell that every 10 years uh, and there's a higher chance change or additional future. Mm-hmm. Now, opposite is the implants work well in the right patients. And it's still the most commonly used restorative in the country. Now, my specific um, interest, I guess I could say, and maybe expertise, lies more on the microscope breast reconstruction where you use your own tissue. The reason I like it more, I guess if you could put it that way, is that type of restoration allows to not worry about maintenance down the road. Mm-hmm. It certainly is a little bit more involved on the front end because, yes, we need to borrow tissue from different areas, you know, and we're able to develop a plan that is specific for the patient's specific body habitus, meaning where is the tissue that we can use without creating problem in those areas to create breasts that are similar in size and symmetry than they were prior to the mastectomy, the removal of the breast. So when you are are looking at a patient and trying to decide where you can harvest tissue, you're talking about the stomach area, maybe the inner thigh area? These are, you know, certainly the lower abdomen is, is, is the favored 
area if it's available. Now, there are patients that had in the past surgeries, maybe abdominal plasties where that tissue was already removed, but also other type of abdominal surgeries, maybe some uh, hysterectomies or, or, or delivery of babies. So mm -hmm. typically we get imaging, CAT scan or MRI, to make sure that the blood vessels that we need, called perforators, are present at the level of the abdomen. But you're correct, the typical area that we look at is the lower abdomen, the medial thigh, the lateral thigh, as well as the gluteal or the buttocks area. And, and you know, we pick the, I guess, quote unquote, donor site where we're gonna borrow tissue in conjunction with the patient. You know, we mm -hmm. wanna not only create, recreate breasts, that the patient is happy with, but one of our big concern as we get, as we are significantly better than we were 10, 15 years ago, is minimizing what we call donor site morbidity. What I mean by that is certainly perforator flaps, which do not affect the muscles when they're, per, when they're performed appropriately. Certainly one thing, there's no functional problem, but also we think about scar, we think about body contour, so we've got to look at elements where, where is that excess fat on that specific patient that we can borrow to recreate breath, but not only that, improve the contour of that area. Now, is That's it easier for you to start with a blank canvas, for instance, if a patient is having a, a bilateral mastectomy, is it easier to recreate a pair rather than try to match an existing breast? That's a great question, and I have a lot of patients that comes in with already a pre-made con uh, conception on what they want because they are under the impression that recreating two breasts would lead to more symmetry down the road. Mm -hmm. Certainly, if you use implants to restore the breast, it is very difficult to have what I would call the no, you know, a, a very natural look because an implant is an implant is an implant is as a shape become already pre-made and to match a natural breast is very difficult. So in that sense, if an implant is used as the ultimate restorative uh, technique, then certainly it makes a little bit more sense to consider strongly doing a contralateral risk reduction or prophylactic mastectomy. Now, this does not necessarily apply when you think about using your own tissue because fat is very similar to glandular tissue and it could take the contour and the shape of a, of a natural breast without the implant look. And the reason that's important is that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things we try to do to restore breasts. We can make them look as if nothing ever happened. You know, we're able to, to, to hide incision in, in the fold. We have breast surgeons that are very good at performing nipple sparing mastectomy. But one of the elements that is still work in progress is the sensation, the feeling. Mm -hmm. And certainly, you know, I've included my practice now uh, restoring 
the, the nerve as well through nerve grafts, but this is still experimental, you know, and we're actually at LSU part of a large clinical trial where we're looking at uh, outcomes in those patients so we can define real indications. But I want to make sure that patients, when they come to see me, if they're going to have a risk reduction procedure, that it's not only based on the symmetry, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's changes that happen besides look after you have a mastectomy and and that that can affect patient's life quality of life yes that that's very interesting i i did not know that there were trials being done to restore feeling i thought i really never imagined that that, that would be a possibility and that's that's very very interesting we'll have to explore that with you another time um, as the trials continue yes that's that's very very hopeful for sure, yeah. um, and do you ever work? Um, well, let's say after your work is done, do yeah. you tend to recommend three D micropigmentation, or do you wait to see if a patient is interested in restoring the look of a natural nipple and areola? Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a great question, and 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 you know. The nipple areola reconstruction is, is to me, is, you know, it's the icing on the cake, you know, and it's the, the, I mean, because this is what, you can have a great shape, but you have to make sure that your nipple areola is in the right position. And I often use, being a, initially a craniofacial surgeon, I also often use the analogy of somebody's nose, right? If you look at somebody's face, but the nose in the, is in the wrong position, uh, then it's not, it's never going to look quite right, even though they have a right, right. face. And, right. and certainly the, you know, we have some great tattoo art artists in town uh, that does some magnificent uh, 3D tattooing. And that allows you to basically place the nipple areola complex where it is the most favorable location. Uh, the days, you know, and, and, but again, it's very spatial specific. Those nipple areola reconstruction can look as if nothing happened. But again, there's no projections of the nipple, right? It's an optical illusion. So there are patients that, you know, will, um, would prefer having a projection of nipple areola reconstruction and that we can do in the office. And oftentimes we'll, we'll combine with that traditional tattooing technique and or uh, you know, something that was pioneered about a group on St. Charles, which is what they refer to as the 4D nipple areola reconstruction, which is basically recreating a nipple using a traditional flap techniques and then using a, a tattoo artist using the, the advanced 3D tattooing techniques, which I think is, is the ultimate nipple areola reconstruction. And I'm fascinated with those results. I, I, I know people who have had it done. I, I know some of the professional micropigmentation yeah. uh, specialists in town, and I am fascinated with how real they can make your body look again. It is oh. incredible. What a talent. No, it's, it's unbelievable. And what's great about it is, you know, it's, it's, it's combining different people with different backgrounds, with different skills, just to, to focus on patient's need. That, that, that also makes me really proud to be involved in something like that, which is truly 
you know, we talk about patient breast cancer meeting multidisciplinary team, but you can't get more multidisciplinary than than getting a, a tattoo artist to come and and be part of of the team. You know, it's it just it blows my mind to think about how all the talents are combined. Well, you've yeah. taken your talents beyond breast reconstruction, actually beyond the United States. Can you talk to us a little bit about your adventures beyond? your surgeries here in New Orleans. Yeah, absolutely. One of the, and again, that's kind of related to, you know, I'm currently the chief of plastic surgery at LSU. I've always been very active um, teaching residents and fellow. We have a microsurgery fellowship as well now. And both, uh, initially I was training residents both under uh, the Tulane and LSU uh, residency training program. And um, I was traveling a lot throughout the state to help children with cleft lip and palate. Lafayette, Alexandria, Baton Rouge, Lake Charles. Uh, and and, and as, my, as our group here in New Orleans, our LSU faculty grew from two, uh, two plastic surgeons when I started to now uh, we're up to 11 plastic wow. surgeons. Right, we have, we have four fellowship trained cranial facial surgeons. So those young guys, kind of took over part of that, that my practice. But then I started thinking about the, the breast cancer patients, the breast survivors, and looking at the local, regional access to care for those advanced procedures. Interestingly enough, as you know, all those procedures were pioneered at LSU, either at oh. LSU, or by LSU individuals. We talk about Bob Allen, right? Or we yes. talk about Scott Sullivan, Frank Delacro. These are all LSU guys. And wow. it, 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 I came to a realization at some point when I was in Lafayette where the patients from Lafayette had to drive all the way to, Baton Rouge, to, to New Orleans to get their treatment, or they were sent to San Antonio. And I was mm -hmm. like, what's going on here? We're in Louisiana. I mean, this is where perforated flat breast reconstruction was invented and yes. it's not been available to patients from Louisiana. So yeah. I, in collaboration with uh, one of my partners initially in uh, Lafayette, because that's where one, a lot of my uh, out, out of town craniofacial activities were, uh, a great plastic surgeon by the name of Steve Delat in Lafayette, kind of teamed up together. And by that time, you know, my, I was, you know, I was exposed to so much microsurgery working with in New Orleans that we made this very complicated surgery, as, as you know, and a lot of people in the country take a lot of time to execute the surgery, but being able to do them very efficiently to avoid uh, having the patients go into the uh, intensive care unit, you know, making mm -hmm. the and, and just having in the hospital for three, four days, almost like an, an, an extended uh, outpatient type procedures and make it a good experience. I was able to team up with some great surgeons. And as I mentioned, Dr. Delat and Lafayette, uh, Michael Diaz uh, actually was my co-residence at LSU in Gulfport, Mississippi. We were the first, me and Dr. Diaz were the first to perform a DIP flat in Mississippi, I mean, it's the next, it's the next state over, and nobody will wow. perform those those surgeries. And in addition to that, 
some of my former residents establish uh, their practice in Savannah, Georgia, and, and Macon, Georgia. And, and what they, they realize is that, you know, to be able to perform those surgery efficiently, this is not a one-man show. You need somebody who's well-trained. So occasionally I go over there and help them out so we can, those services can be available to their patients over there because nobody else in their community offers those uh, services. My, my latest uh, local endeavor is actually, you know, once I was able to establish a, a very robust program in Lafayette, I've been building that program for the past five to seven years now. We perform over 150 flaps a year over there. Uh, you know, I've noticed that north of I-10, there was nothing going on. So we actually uh, recruited one of the plastic surgeons by the name of Marjorie Shelley to come and spend a year to, on our microsurgery fellowship with us. So she spent a year with us at LSU, learned our tricks, and now she's back mm -hmm. to, to Shreveport. And we go uh, monthly, myself, along with a couple of my partners, Mark Stalder and Daniel Womack, go help her out uh, to perform those surgeries over there. And nobody's ever done a perforator flap breast reconstruction in Shreveport before us over there, which is quite unbelievable. Shreveport is the second largest city in the state. Yes. So that was that, that's my local regional kind of adventure. But about three years ago, we had a, a great microsurgery fellow by the name of Juan Jose Fernandez, who was originally from Ecuador. He trained in Long Island and came and spent a year with us to learn more about microsurgery. And he's always dreamt to go back to Ecuador to help people from Ecuador, where he's from. And we found a, basically a university hospital in Guayaquil, uh, which is a very large uh, city, over 2 million uh, um, people uh, population, with a, uh, where no microsurgical breast surgical, no microsurgical breast reconstruction is performed. So with his help and his connections he had over there, we established uh, a mission where we go yearly um, to help patients uh, who need microsurgical breast reconstructions. Our last trip, uh, we went there for a week and we executed about, a t we helped 12 different patients, uh, wow. so ma mainly delayed uh, procedures, but um, you know, we're looking uh, eventually to team up with some local breast surgeons so we can offer um, immediate autogenous reconstruction. That's so, yeah. just life altering for someone in need and and just can change their whole attitude about living in general. Oh, absolutely. And this is, I mean, this is the ultimate. This, the, those people, and again, you know, this is, this, this, these are well-educated individual and, and people in need as well, you know. Uh, we help all kind of people when we go, um, in Guayaquil, but they were not even aware that it was possible. They just accepted the fact that they would live forever without a breast. And yeah, it was it was unbelievable to see their reaction the following day when they would look <laughs> at themselves in the mirror and say, wow, how did you do this? You know, and creating, and of course, we had good patients, 
there were great candidates so we were able to obtain fabulous results on the first stage and 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 it was it was a great great adventure and we're we're planning and once that whole COVID allows us to travel <laughs> a more, you know, uh, to to expand more and and bring some of my partners over there and make it a part of the our microsurgery and residency training program and and eventually train some of the physicians over there to executive surgery. Well, those stories of service and perspective uh, help to others in the future has really lifted my spirits this afternoon. I'm so excited at the possibilities for for folks in need. That's amazing. It really is. How do you win the confidence of, of a patient who may seem anxious or unsure about how to move forward with a restorative procedure? Right. This is a great question. And, and I'm, you know, it's, it is very patient specific, you know, and, and certainly the, diagnosis of breast cancer is is never a good news um you know the good thing that we have from our standpoint as the restorative doctor is that we actually are the one that offer the hopes right and we offer the the ability once the treatment is completed to be back to at least as close as possible to where the patient was prior to this bad news. So, and, and, and as you know, different people take bad news different ways. The way I, my approach is to try to educate the patient as much as possible. Um, sometimes it's difficult. It's a lot of information. It's a lot of a lot of decisions that have to be made and, and and sometimes some of those early decisions are critical to the long-term uh, result of the restoration you know just the you know sometimes you'll see patients who comes in because you know our breast surgeons are very good at sending patients to have a conversations with the plastic surgeons even though patients might say listen i just want to take care of the cancer do mastectomy. Mm -hmm. I worry about it down the road, but oftentimes, if this is done that way, you burn bridges, and it's very difficult to restore the patient to where they were prior to the breast cancer. So, I guess my my approach is, you know, providing as much uh, information as possible. Either myself, my support staff, I have some great help in my office nurse practitioner that are available all the time to answer questions as you know it's hard for us because we're always in the operating room uh, but also put them in touch with previous patients uh, certainly i'm sure the work that you do in terms of supporting patients help as well tremendously um, but you know it's it, it, it's 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 always a difficult conversation the first one we have with patients so my it is, and, it, and, and it's often costly um, to the patient, and uh, via the Cancer Advocacy Group of Louisiana, which is an organization I'm involved with, with Julie Stokes mm -hmm. and Chadwick Landry and some other fabulous folks, um, Julie was 
very instrumental in helping to write a bill ensuring that a prophylactic mastectomy would be covered by insurance, uh, I believe starting in either 2021 or 2022, if a patient does choose to do that. Um, that's huge. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, because you're right. Now, even now, and because I heard some of those stories about it today, so the bill is not in, in, in effect as of yet, but you know, patients are dealing with this and then they, for their own reason, which, you know, we could spend hours discussing, you know, the, the, the decision for a contralateral risk reduction procedure is a very personal question in the absence of yes. a, high, uh, a, high, a high family history or a gen certainly if you have a genetic mutation, this is kind of yes. a, a brainer. But you know, you can't put a price on peace of mind. And unfortunately, right. if the insurance company gets in the middle of this and say, well, on our scale, you're not very high risk, then yeah, it adds, some, it adds significant stress that the patient does not need to go through. So that's I great. Often, I often say that what you guys do um, is completely concerned with the human element, the the emotions, the physical outcome, and you're dealing with an industry that's insurance companies that are just black and white numbers. There's no human no. element attached to it whatsoever. So it's such a conflict for the two of you guys to have to meet in the middle. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And, and un I mean, you know, the way I feel about insurance company, I tell my patients all the time, you know, they're not always there to help, and they often right. they often gets in the way. But sadly, I'm, that's true. Yeah, I'm 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 very happy with 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 the work that that you and and Julie Stokes have done to help patients from that standpoint, because they they don't need to go through that. This is just agreed, it's just, and it like you said, it's such a personal decision, and it needs to remain a personal decision and not dictated by. Um, a standard blanket of of choice by Under someone in a <laughs> in a boardroom somewhere. That's right. That's right. Well, Dr. Saint Hilaire, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but I'm so enjoying speaking with you, and I'm hoping we can make another appointment soon to talk more I about the trials that are going on. And um, one more question. Yes. That I, know I get asked all the time, and I don't know the answer. Um, are 3D mammograms necessary after restorative surgery? That's a great question. I'm asked that question all the time as well. Ultimately, I always defer that answer to the breast oncologist. But the, the answer you will get is that if you, the patient, Okay, certainly a lumpectomy, you know, which is only removal of the portion of the breast, followed commonly by radiation therapy. Yes, those patients will need a, a monitoring with mammogram or 3D mammogram because there's still breast tissue present. If a patient has a mastectomy, which is the removal of the glandular portion of breast, uh, there is no need for monitoring unless it is a nipple sparing procedure because okay. it is assumed that there will be some remaining breast tissue 
under the nipple areolar complex. That's the quick makes, answer. But, that makes perfect sense. Right, but it is, again, like everything in life is very patient specific and that answer is always better that that question is always better answered by the your surgical oncologist or your breast oncologist well that certainly answered my question today and i got a history lesson today that i wasn't expecting Which on uh, just the history <laughs> of breast re restorative oh. breast surgery I, that was fascinating and um I feel empowered now with more knowledge. <laughs> We're in the middle of it. And, and you know, next time I certainly, I want to talk to you, to you more about the work that we're doing in clinical research for the resensation with the oxygen group. But also, you know, part of what we're doing at LSU is not only, it, it's taking care of everybody. And one of the area that we have noticed uh, was, deficient was in a surgical treatment of lymphedema following mm -hmm. breast cancer. Yes. And recently, one of my partner uh, by the name of Mark Stalder uh, started a program at uh, UMC of surgical lymphedema. And uh, I'll okay, on occasion go help him out, but he's, he's, the, he's the one who's, who's letting that uh, program. And this is offered for everybody, uh, underprivileged or, or privileged patients. You know, mm -hmm. but that's something that that is kind of um, we're trying. You know, there've been some groups in 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 the state that trying those effort, but it's never survived too long of a period. So we're mm -hmm. on the beginning process of having some great results. So I'd like at some point talk to you a little bit more about that because that's uh, that's an unfortunate complication of breast cancer, and that's yes. one of those the thing. If it's available in town, you know, it, it, it's always better to recover from an intervention in your own town close to your family and it's always makes it easier for the post-operative care as well 100 percent. and we will pencil that in our calendar to contact you in a few months to see where you are in the trials and information i'm, I'm fascinated by that that's so exciting sounds great i'll be there Thank you so much. We hope that you'll visit us um, on September 24th for Click to Save. We're having a virtual event this year in lieu of COVID. And um, if nothing else, you'll be entertained by our awkwardness doing a telethon. So you're going to want to tune in for that. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. St. Hilaire, so much. Thank you so much for participating today. And we hope to speak with you very, very soon. Thank you for all you do. You have a good evening. Thank you. You too, sir. Good night. Thank you for listening to today's show. We really, really appreciate you joining us. We had two great guests. We hope you learned a lot. I know we learned a lot interviewing them. And we hope to see everyone at Click to Save 2020 on September 24th. You got anything to... That's perfect, Chuck. Um, thanks for listening with us today. If there's anything we can do to help you, you can reach us at... Chuck at KTSRBI.org and Karen at KTSRBI.org. You can also go to KTSRBI.org and click on the podcast tab in the top right-hand corner. And in that podcast tab, there is a link to leave us a voicemail message. So if you'd like to leave us a voicemail message, you can do that via the website. And we look forward to you participating in Click to Save on September 24th. And everybody have a fabulous week. Demand 3D.